0: Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe, and if you're visiting with us or this is your first time, it's good to have you, and we're excited to be able to be here together studying the Word of God as a church. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 9, um, and if you uh, missed last week or you haven't been uh, following along, we're taking a summer break from our study of the book of 1 Samuel. Um, normally we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, but, uh, and we're preaching first Samuel, but we're taking a eight week break to look into the book of Proverbs to look at biblical wisdom. And the reason for this is that uh, we think that you're all pretty foolish. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the reason for this is that we feel like it'll really bear fruit in the life of our church. That as we uh, go into uh, the summer season, when a lot of people are traveling, we understand that uh, there'll be a little bit of a uh, ebb and flow to attendance. Um, we want to have an opportunity to look at um, what it means to be wise and to deal with the challenges and struggles and questions we have in day-to-day life with the wisdom of Scripture Last week, Pastor Jesse introduced us to wisdom. He talked about the value of wisdom, uh, that it's something worthwhile, that if you get it, it's, it's just uh, amazingly valuable. And this week, as we set our minds on acquiring that wisdom, we need to start with the right foundation. So we're going to be in Proverbs 9, verses 1 through 10. If you'd read that uh, with me, then we'll go ahead and, and pray and go into the text together. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young woman to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we ask that you would give us grace upon grace, Lord. We know that you have built wisdom into this world. And yet in our sin and in our foolishness, we've turned away from, from you. We've turned away from your truth. We've turned away from wisdom and we have gone after many other things. And, and we we confess, Lord, that that's the case for us even here. And we pray that as we come to your scripture and we listen to your word and, and we, we hear about the fear of the Lord would you give us the gift, Lord, to, to fear you rightly this afternoon? Help us to respond to you in the way that you desire, in the way that, that, that leads to glory for you and good for us, your people. And we ask, Lord, that you would do this for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you get to the book of Proverbs and you haven't read it before, uh, what you'll realize is that a lot of the Proverbs are just kind of um, thrown together, it might seem. So you're reading through it. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of theme going on from one short proverb to the next. But that's not actually the case for the whole book. If you look at the book of Proverbs, and we need to kind of set the stage here, the first nine chapters of the book are written differently. They're not in these small snippets. They actually have a flow to them where the writer of Proverbs talks about, in those chapters, the beauty of wisdom. Talks about how amazing wisdom is, personifies wisdom, as Jesse talked about last week. Kind of gives us this whole uh, uh, setup for why wisdom is amazing and great. And as we get to Proverbs 9, which is the end of this first section of the book of Proverbs, we see that Lady Wisdom is having a dinner party. You can think of it that way. She set the table. She has all the best food. And um, if you um, want to kind of picture it in your mind, it is not only the best tasting food, but it's also good for you. So it's a double whammy, right? It doesn't even really exist in this world. Everything that I like to eat, I uh, shouldn't eat. But here in Wisdom's house, there is a platter of food. There is food and drink of the highest quality. But in this chapter, starting in verse 7 through 9, Not everyone sees it. Not everyone wants to eat at the table. Some people refuse to come. Some who the Proverbs will call scoffers and wicked and fools, really, they will not accept wisdom, while others will come. Those who the Proverbs call wise and righteous will come to the table, and they'll eat, and they'll be nourished, and they'll be changed. And it turns out that according to the Proverbs, there are really only two kinds of people. Those who are getting wise and those who are becoming more foolish. And the difference between them, for to boil it down in the beginning of the book of Proverbs, is fear. The difference between the wise person and the fool starts with fear. In a simple, incredibly important phrase to the Bible, Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Any person who desires to grow in wisdom, to applying wisdom, to learning how to live rightly in this world, is going to have to acquire the right kind of fear of the Lord along the way. So this afternoon, we're not going to do an in-depth exposition of chapter 9 in Proverbs, but instead we're going to look at this concept of the fear of the Lord uh, kind of foundationally to give us an understanding and a starting point for learning and accepting and growing in all the ways that we want to grow over the next six weeks. And so we're going to do that in three parts, okay? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but what does that really mean? Three parts, three questions, and it starts first first with understanding what is fear, what is fear, biblically speaking? If I were to ask you, um, and this is one of those kind of basic questions that is sometimes hard to, to define. If I were to ask you, what is fear? What would you say? Just think about it for a moment. How would you define fear? I think most of us would define fear Emotionally. Right, that there's, there's this negative feeling we have in response to something happening in the world or inside of us that, that causes us to, to be anxious. Right? There's this response that's emotional, maybe even physiological, but it comes to a perceived threat or something like that. And when it comes to the Bible, that is part of it. But there's more. And it turns out that in English, if you were to kind of like study the word fear in the English language, since the 1900s, this has been the predominant way we use fear, to talk about our feeling. I feel afraid. I feel this kind of terror inside of me. But this isn't how it was always used. And when we look at the Bible, the Hebrew word for fear, it encompasses a lot more. The Hebrew word that is translated fear most often, and especially when it talks about fearing the Lord, is the Hebrew word yareh. Okay, yare, you don't have to spell it, but it's um, good to remember. It's a word that occurs over 400 times in the Old Testament. And it has a whole host of meanings from trembling and shaking in certain contexts to standing in awe and giving honor and reverence and respect. And yet for both of these different sorts of responses, the Bible uses the same word, yare, fear. And the reason for this is, is that the Hebrew word for fear is not focused on your emotion. It includes it, okay? I'm not saying it's not part of it. Yeah, fear is fear, but it's not focused first on the emotion. What the Hebrew word yare focuses on is actually control. It focuses on the idea of control. According to the Bible, what you fear, what you yare, is the thing that controls and determines and influences how you live and how you act. I read a story this past week about a girl who was living in the UK um, and, and she developed a, a terrible fear when she was just uh, four or five years old of opening her mouth and going to the dentist. So what happened was she went to the dentist and you know, that's kind of a common fear, right? <laughs> People have fear of going to the dentist. I've never felt it because uh, my teeth are wonderful, but um, I know some of you have it. But this girl, she went to the dentist and unfortunately at a young age, what happened was some just a slip up happened where the dentist ended up cutting her tongue. And so um, obviously that freaked her out. It wasn't like a terrible uh, problem, but because of that, she, she never wanted to go back. And it got worse and worse and worse. And a few years later when she was supposed to go back, and they had been kind of holding off on bringing her to the dentist because of her fear, um, her teeth were getting worse. And so she needed to go to the dentist, but she was so scared she wouldn't open her mouth for three days prior to her appointment. Um, and when she got there, she, she just wouldn't go through with it. And it was so bad that they actually had to sedate her, take her to the hospital, and, um, and then work on her teeth while she was under. And unfortunately, they found out that her teeth were in worse condition than they thought. And so they ended up pulling a number of her teeth. And so when she woke up, she found out that this is what had happened. And, and that just sent the fear into overdrive. Eventually, um, as uh, she was kind of recovering from this, or hopefully recovering, what happened was she, she just became scared to even open her mouth. She wouldn't talk. She wouldn't eat. They tried to feed her from a tube. But the fear of, of, of having someone mess with her mouth had gotten so crazy that she literally died of starvation and dehydration. And it's a terrible and sad story. But it illustrates for us the connection between fear and control. As you look at the use of the word yare in the Hebrew Bible, you'll notice that, that there are two major uses. That, that far outstrip anything else, the Bible says, fear God, Yare Yahweh, the Lord. And it says, don't fear anything else. Says, fear God, don't fear anything else. Why? Not because there aren't scary things in the world. Okay, If we think that's what's happening, that's that's not true. The Bible acknowledges, and we know that there are scary things. right? It's probably good for you to be a little bit afraid of spiders or snakes or heights. right? These things can harm you. There are scary things in the world. And the Bible also doesn't say that you shouldn't respect anyone else, that you shouldn't honor anything else. The Bible talks about honoring those in authority, respecting your mother and father, but it never says to fear your parents because fear is about control. The heart, we've talked about, is the control center of the body, and very often the thing that influences, controls, and motivates our heart most is what we yare, what we fear. When we think about the story of that poor girl in England, we might think that we're different from her. But the truth is we aren't really that different at all. Our fears are different. Maybe the scale and severity of it are different. But if we're honest, we'll see that in so many ways, the decisions we make in life are most powerfully affected by what we fear. Do you see that in your own life? Can you kind of look back and see it in the decisions you've made? My wife and I, we see this all the time in our home. And this is just a little example. We see our children and every once in a while we can see the controlling power of something they fear. Uh, they love to be at home they love to play right they love to mess around with each other and fight and and the home is like their playground so it's kind of funny because we always want to get out of the house but they always want to stay there and i told them this week it's probably because you have no chores right that's why you always want to be at this house um but they love being there um, but there's one thing that happens fairly often is that they'll be playing downstairs and there's something upstairs they want but they won't get it and it's because the lights are off upstairs they want to go upstairs, they want to play, they want to continue the fun, and they even know that if they, they complain about it too much, mom or dad is gonna get mad at them. They don't want that. But in that moment, what controls them is their yare, their fear of the darkness. And of course, it's not just kids. It happens to us as adults. Sometimes it happens worse to us as adults. Um I always had a fear of heights growing up. I think it's natural, it's good, okay? But in my 30s, I started to discover that my fear of heights seemed to be getting worse. It seemed to be becoming more of a controlling fear. And, and how did I know that? Because um, it wasn't just about this physical anxiety. What would happen was I began to see this fear controlling my decisions and my behavior. I realized that even if it would make me late, I would take a different path so I wouldn't have to go over certain overpasses or bridges there's this one bridge in uh, LA where we used to live uh, that went over the kind of the bay and it was super steep. And I just would not cross that bridge if I could help it to answer the first question. What is biblical fear? We need to understand the biblical connection between fear and control. Yare, as the Bible talks about it is not first of all about the emotion It's about what exerts a life-changing influence on you. And the fact that the command to not fear anything else and the encouragement to fear the Lord is everywhere in the Bible in the Old Testament tells us that this is a universal thing. It's better understood as not an emotion, but a motivation. Now, what about you? Even if you don't feel particularly anxious... Even if you don't feel particularly terrified of anything, even if you are macho in your own eyes, you need to understand that Yare is at work in your life. Fear is at work in one way or another. There are things that you fear that exert this control over you. And so before we move on, we got to ask the question, what is it that you tend to fear? For some of you, the, the answer is just immediately obvious. You know what it is you fear. But for others, maybe not right away. Don't think first about that creepy image or that uh, scary story that they tell you at camp when you go as a kid. Think about what dominates your life. Think about your decision making as of recent months and years. What is it that you fear? The fear of what could happen to our children is always kind of at the outskirts of our decision making. It wants to break in, it wants to be the primary reason. The controlling reason why we do or do not do certain things, why we do or don't let them go to sleepovers, why we do or don't send them to a certain event, why we don't let them watch certain shows, or we only want them to be with certain friends. Now, there are lots of good reasons to think through those, but oftentimes it's my fear of what might happen that's controlling it. And here's what wisdom tells us. We were never meant to fear anything in this world in that way. We were never meant to give control of our lives to the things that people around us naturally even fear, whether that's other people or whether that is viruses or governments or health issues or financial problems or the like. And all those things are important and they're significant, but they're not supposed to be the focus of our controlling fear, our yare. The fear of the world is foolishness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yare, fear, is meant to be reserved for God alone. So that's the first building block, to understand what the Bible means when it talks about fear. Secondly, then, and more specifically, what is the fear of the Lord that the Bible keeps encouraging us to? What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is incredibly important. It appears all over the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature, but really everywhere, and it appears in the New Testament too, with people being called God-fearers. But we can just cut to the chase, okay? If what we said about fear in the Bible is true, that Yare is about control and motivation and influence, then this is what follows. The fear of the Lord is a response to God that we are supposed to have, where God becomes the greatest influence in our life. I'll say that again. The fear of the Lord is a response to God that we are supposed to have where God becomes the greatest influence in your life. Can I understand where this is going? The fear of God can include that emotional just being literally afraid of him. At times it can refer to being deeply reverent to him. It includes all those things as long as you realize what it's pointing at ultimately is a life that is changed in accordance to who God is and what he desires. It's a response to him where he becomes the greatest influence in how we live. And this response to God, this reality of God being the primary influence in our life, it includes a number of things, which the Proverbs will point out. Okay. First, according to the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord includes an intellectual response. It includes an intellectual response. Knowing who God is, knowing about him, discovering, learning more about the Lord himself. Proverbs 1, seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Proverbs 9.10, which we just read and we looked at, we saw it say that the parallel idea to the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom is that the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of the Lord includes an intellectual response where we know more about God. Now, I know some of you, many of you here are really into music. You love music. You love even to make music. And that's kind of cool. Uh, you should join us on worship team because uh, we would love to help. Um, but you're into music. Now, just imagine for a moment that you meet another person who also says, hey, I'm a musician too. And you say, that's awesome, man. i like like, uh, that's great. Let's, let's, let's bond over this connection. Now, I'm not really a musician, so I don't know too much, but follow me here. You talk to this person. You, you get to know one another. And rather casually, you ask him or her, what are some of your biggest influences? And the person smiles and says, you know what? It's, it's the Beatles. It's the Beatles, right? UK connection. And you say, really? What songs? What, what, which Beatles? Like, what, what, what things about them? And they say, you know, um, I don't really know the names of all the Beatles. And um, I don't really know who wrote which songs. I don't even really know the names of all the songs, but I've heard them before. And they're my biggest influence. What would you say? Say, you're a dum-dum, right? You don't know what influence is. You don't understand. That's not influence. It's foolish. You cannot be greatly influenced by what you do not know. And the same applies to God. And we have so many people in the church who actually are very similar to that person talking about the Beatles. Where they say, you know what? Jesus is my biggest influence. Oh, what about him do you like? That time when he... Died on the cross. That's all they can remember. What teachings of his do, you, do, do influence your life? You know, when he said to love, right? That, that's all we got in the bank. We don't know the God we're supposed to fear. Who's supposed to be our influence. Secondly, the Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord is not just an intellectual response. It's a moral response. It includes a moral response to him. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I, that is the Lord, hate. The fear of the Lord is a response to God that includes hatred of that which is wrong. The verse is saying that you cannot be greatly influenced by God if you do not hate what He hates and love what He loves. To hate sin, to love the fellowship of believers, to love holiness and righteousness, to hate division. As a Bible-believing and teaching church, we have to celebrate what the Bible celebrates, not what the world thinks is wise. If you say you fear the Lord, then you will hate what he says is wrong. You will deny what is evil. You will turn away from it. And 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 we oftentimes think just naturally about like sexual issues or blatant sins like that, but Proverbs talks about pride and arrogance, the way of evil, perverted speech. These are things that we see all the time in ourselves, the fear of the Lord includes a moral response to God where we decide to align ourselves to what he says is right, even when it's difficult. There's an intellectual response, a moral response. Thirdly, the Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord includes an attitude response. An attitude response. Proverbs 15:33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. The fear of the Lord is a right response to God that includes humility. See, you know about God. You, you learn more about God. You understand what he says is right and wrong, right? You, you acknowledge that. You assent to that. And then thirdly, you realize that if that's true, I fall short. I need to change. I need to see myself rightly. The fear of the Lord includes, according to Proverbs fifteen thirty-three, the realization that I am the one who needs to change first, that I'm not right, that actually knowing God and hating evil means that I need to start right here, myself. Not with everyone out there who I can see their sins easily, but with myself, the person who I'm most blind to. I need to see myself rightly and understand I need to change. See, the fear of the Lord is this right response that includes knowing what's right, Hating what's wrong and realizing that I need to change, that you need to change. One Hebrew scholar writes that Yare is the ultimate motivation for an individual to live a right and righteous life. An old Puritan uh, explained the fear of the Lord in this way, and I like what he says because it's old fashioned and sometimes the old ways are good. He wrote, the fear of the Lord is a holy inclination of the heart, generated, generated by God in the hearts of his children, whereby out of reverence for God, they take careful pains not to displease God, but earnestly endeavor to please him in everything. That's what the fear of the Lord is. A right response to God where he becomes the greatest influence, the biggest motivation, the most important decision-making factor in your life. And that leads us then to the third question that we need to answer, the third kind of block we're building here about the fear of the Lord. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? When I was in high school, um, we were busy with all sorts of school things. That was really what my life was about, right? Just do good in school, hopefully go to a good college, get your life on track through that method. And that means, but I had one friend who um, really liked to be about spiritual things. Okay. And um, as a high school, it was kind of in a funny way to me. Um, I didn't appreciate maybe his maturity. Um, and I remember one time we were sitting around, I think we were playing like NBA live 2002 or something. Right. So we're playing basketball and um, not actual basketball, right? Like video game basketball. And he stopped and he's like, Eric, I think I know what the problem is with the world. And I was like, all right, enlighten me, please, uh, what the problem is with the world. And it was the weirdest thing. He said, it's that people don't really understand the fear of the Lord. And as I'm 17, okay? As a 17-year-old. I looked at him, and I was like, shut up, man. What are you talking about? That's not important to me right now. I'm just trying to beat you in this game. Who cares about that? As I thought about it, though, if I can be completely honest... That wasn't what I thought was wrong with people at all, and I didn't think that's what I needed. And as I think about myself, it wasn't just that I was distracted with this video game at the time. It didn't fit with the way I was living my life because there was a lot of other things that, that I thought were wrong and a lot of other ways I thought were important to be wise in my mind, I had to prep for my SATs. I had to prep for AP tests. I had to volunteer at a local hospital so that it would look like all I wanted to do was help people. I had to make sure that I got a varsity letter and kept my grades up and do all these check boxes of things so that I could be successful in life. Now, what he said in that moment, I totally dismissed. I completely like, just, whatever. Man. I don't. That's That's dumb. But as I look back, for the past 20 years almost now, I think he was right. That the things actually that have led to blessing in my life by the grace of God were the times that I feared God. I lived according to his word. And the times when I feared the things of this world and and I lived like everyone else in the world was telling me to live, those things that they gained were, were very short and temporary. Sometimes they were bad. There were things that I thought were important. There were things that I thought made for a good life. What my friend was saying, and he was right because it's what God says, is that the fear of the Lord is the only way to true blessing. Perhaps some of you feel that way today. It sounds um, okay maybe, or maybe it sounds kind of old-fashioned and ridiculous right? Like fire and brimstone, like get serious about God, fear God or else. But if that's you, you need to understand better what what the Proverbs are really saying, why this is wisdom, okay? The Proverbs are saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this famous phrase is deeper than you might imagine at first. In fact, it's one of the most profound things that the Bible could tell us about living rightly in the world. The word for beginning in Hebrew is reshith, okay? Reshith, it can mean two things. One, it can mean that something is the best or, or like the head or the apex, right? The, the pinnacle of wisdom, you could say. But two, it can also mean that it's the prerequisite, the first step to becoming actually wise. We talked about how wisdom could also be translated to skill, the first step to knowing how to live in this world. When it comes to wisdom, when the Bible uses the word Rashith, beginning, it means both. It's the pinnacle and it is the prerequisite. It's the first step from which all other skill to live a good, blessed life comes. You want to be productive. You want to be successful, quote-unquote. You want to do things in this world that are great and important Then, the beginning is the fear of the Lord. Why? Because according to the Bible, this is God's world. You're just living in it. We're going to get a little philosophical for a moment. I hope uh, that's okay with you. I think it's important for us to really drill down into this. It is an epic claim. In this one passage, the Bible tells us that the pursuit of anything that we think is good. Okay, the pursuit of anything you think is good only makes sense because of the truth that God exists. It only makes sense because of the objective reality that there is a God who has created this world and designed it in such a way that you can live a good and productive life. What do I mean by that? Well, some things are subjective, okay? And I'm trying not to get too far off the text, but some things are subjective. That means they they differ based on your personal taste or uh, your feelings. You might call them opinions, right? There are opinions we have, and there's a subjective reality to that. We think things about people. We feel things about things in this world. But there are other things that we believe are objective. That means they are true no matter what our opinions are or our feelings are or how they change on the subject. For example, it's an objective reality that someone else, like your spouse, for example, exists. Right? Even if you deny it inside, even if you feel like, even if you treat them like they don't exist, they still do. It's outside of you. It's objective. The Bible tells us that there is an objective reality outside of us. Apart from our opinions that will outlast our opinions, there is something outside of us that is true and eternal. And that something or someone is the Lord. God is the one who created everything. He determines what is true and what is untrue. He determines what is right and wrong. He determines what is and what is not. And he has built wisdom into the world. He has made this objective world work in ways that, even though it's complicated and it takes hundreds of years to figure out, they are ways that are predictable and understandable. They happen regularly because God reigns and rules. And that's how you grow in wisdom. Okay, let me explain. When, when you learn as a kid not to touch something because it's hot, because that thing burns you, the reason why you grow in wisdom is because every time you touch something hot, it's going to burn you. Right? That's just how the world works. It's an objective reality. It's true. Hot things will hurt. But what ensures that's the case? What ensures that the law of thermodynamics happens every time and that, that sowing and reaping matter and that there's cause and effect? What the Bible says is God is the one. Who ensures that because God is the ultimate reality. That's why the Bible says in him, we live and move and have our being that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that all things are created by him and through him and for him. The reality of a God who rules and reigns and sustains undergirds everything objective the concepts of scientific laws, the concept of there being something we ought to do morally, the concept of there being a difference between fiction and nonfiction, all those things, if you really think about it, they only make sense if there is a God. They only make sense because we live in his world, and he does not change. And that's why the fear of the Lord is the first step to wisdom. You need to acknowledge the world is separate from you. It works in ways that you need to get in order for you to get better at living in it. See, a person who lives in their own head all the time, it's not wise. He's not wise. He might be sophisticated. He might seem enlightened. He might seem like like a a smart and kind person. But a person who, who focuses first and only on the subjective things that they think their feelings and opinions and not on how this world works, they will not be wise. Unless you recognize you live in a world where actions have consequences, where other people exist and they can affect you, where your actions will affect others, unless you recognize that, you will struggle in this world. You will. You'll, you'll wonder why, why you, you wrecked that situation when the reason is so clear to everyone else who saw you yelling, and screaming you'll wonder why this person doesn't want to be near to you when it's so clear to everyone objectively that's because you try to hold too tightly onto them this world has objective reality to it and we're living in it have you ever tried to play a game with someone who doesn't know the rules it's not fun okay it's not fun i remember in in college um i used to like to play real basketball and um there was one guy who was just like the most athletic, amazing guy, right? He could like dunk, he was so fast, he was so um, so strong, he could do everything. But he didn't really know basketball. And so what he would do is he would just he would just use his strength to overpower you. He'd be fouling you into the ground, he'd be traveling with the ball, and it did not make the game fun at all. Because no matter how gifted he was, if you don't know that there are rules, if you don't know the rules, you can't be good at it. But when you acknowledge God, when you acknowledge the rule giver of this world, then it leads to blessing. Proverbs say the fear of the Lord leads to blessing. Proverbs 10:27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. 1426. In the fear of the Lord one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29.25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The Proverbs tell us, That if you fear the Lord, you learn to live in his world according to his word, you will be blessed. And now the question is, well, what about when it doesn't happen that way? What about when sometimes uh, someone who is fearing the Lord, their life gets cut short? What about as Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes, when he sees a sinner sin a hundred times, but his life is still prolonged? Well, those are exceptions to the rule, you might say. But they're exceptions because this is how The world works. The Proverbs, the wisdom of God, they're general rules. The world is complex. It's complicated. God is sovereign over everything. But there are still these things that matter. The way you live will affect your life, will affect other people. The choices you make will determine in a big part how successful you are in this world. The way you choose to act, the way you choose to live, the way you choose to control yourself will determine the depth of your relationships. See, the person who fears the Lord is blessed, even if there are times when bad things still happen to them. When we think about wisdom, I think sometimes we're kind of like um, a person who loves to eat unhealthy. And we say, you know, I have a friend, um, and she ate, like, the best food all her life. She exercised every day, but she got cancer at 30. So obviously, it doesn't work. Obviously, the idea that eating healthy and exercising is good for you is is bunk. So just like case closed, I rest, uh, send me another bag of chips, please, right? Well, the Bible says, if that's how you think about God, you're foolish. The world isn't simple. It's complicated. But still, according to Scripture, according to God, you can bank on the fact that if you fear the Lord, blessing will come in one way or another. In this world, or ultimately in the world to come, and those who flaunt their sin and despise God will receive their due in this life or sometimes at the end. And those who fear God and love God will experience his goodness in this life and also in the life to come. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Wisdom is available for you. If you submit to God, you fear him and you trust him. And that wisdom will lead to blessing. We live in a world nowadays that um, I think has veered more and more towards what I would call a subjective view of identity. And I want to talk about this just for a little bit. I know that um, uh, maybe some of you feel like you're already past this, but especially for young people here. We live in a world that has veered more and more towards viewing our sense, our our conception of who we are as just totally a subjective thing. That who I am really is based on my opinion or my feelings in that moment. And it's given rise to a whole host of ideas about fluidity in every area of life. And if you've interacted with the world at all in pop culture, you understand this. You see it. It's becoming more and more popular. And we want to be compassionate here. Identity is not an easy thing. There are so many factors that go into your conception of who you really are. But there's wisdom here, if you understand that this is God's world. It might seem like there are only two choices how to navigate this whole like, idea of identity, right? Which, which is a big thing, especially this month where people are talking about it a lot. It might seem that there are only two choices. One, the popular and worldly choice is to figure out your identity on your own and then to look to the world to affirm it. So figure out who you are to just deal with that internally, then look at the world and and ask them to affirm that so that you can have a sense of of self-worth and belonging, to become comfortable with your subjective view of yourself, and then to have others embrace that, to act in alignment with what you have already decided. That's kind of the popular way. That's what the world is going to tell you. If you're a young person, that's what you need to do. Figure out who you are on the inside and then have everyone else embrace it. The second choice, though, is to try and force your identity to match what the expectations already are of the people around you. And that's kind of the popular uh, religious way to do it, right? Put more simply, you try to force yourself to be what your parents want you to be. You try to force yourself to be what your community wants you to be, and you hope that you can do it with just sheer force of will as long as you live. This is also popular in different circles in the first choice. A lot of country songs actually talk about things like that. Like, I'm going to be the man that she thinks I am. Right? I'm going to pull myself up to, to, to embrace what others' opinion is of me. That's how I'll figure out my identity. In this instance, you try to make your internal self match the expectations of others. Right? So one is have them embrace what I found out inside. And the other one is have my inside match what everyone else thinks about me. But if we're honest... Both of these solutions to the issue of identity end up being foolish. And you see that. It ends up wrecking people. And then they feel messed up about life. Either way, whether they embrace their inner self or they try to embrace what other people wanted them to be, it wrecks them. They feel worn out and tired and exhausted. The first person finds that, ironically, their happiness is not based on embracing their own identity, but having other people also embrace it. And the second person finds that despite their hard attempts to conform, they end up doing things and wanting things and pursuing things and building things inside of them that cause a deconstruction of everything that they value. And what wisdom tells us is that in this situation with identity, both people approach the situation Not fearing God, but fearing man. Both people, in different ways, but but similarly, they feared what other people thought of them. They feared what other people said they ought to do. They did not fear the Lord. If you disconnect your understanding of who you are from God, there's so much pain in that. But the Bible says, and bringing it back To the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. There is a third way. Instead of fearing other people, instead of allowing that fear of other people to determine so much about your identity, your identity needs to come from the fear of the Lord. How is this different? Well, when you fear the Lord, you see yourself rightly and objectively in light of what God has said. You accept the truth that He created you with all of your struggles and doubts and insecurities as well as your gifts and talents and lovable things, it was no accident. But you also accept the objective truth that you are a sinner, that there are things inside of you that want to suppress the truth of God, that want to turn away from him, that sin is the only reasonable explanation for the evil in this world. And then you again, in wisdom, when you fear the Lord, you see and accept the objective truth that you are in need of help that's why the gospel is such good news. That you need God continuously to be refined and changed over and over again. That your identity is based on what he says, not just in a moment, but daily. Moment by moment. That you fear the Lord, that he becomes the greatest influence in your life. And you find rest and peace and security in that. There's blessing and wisdom to the fear of of the Lord. It's what we said earlier. You know what is good, you know what is bad. They're both inside you sometimes. But you realize you need to change. And you recognize that God has given us in Christ and the gospel the grace and the means to change. When your identity is formed under the wisdom of fearing God, then the good news of a Savior who secured eternity for us, who walks with you in your struggles who ultimately will set you free from the flesh, is the best news you could possibly hear. See, the word Rashith for beginning, it appears early in the Bible. I see the first word in the Bible, "bereshith," in Hebrew. In the beginning, God. God is. It's the reality that undergirds everything, and when you align yourself to that, everything else falls into place. He is The reason for existence, he is the beginning, and he is the end. So fear him. What is fear? Biblically, fear is when something controls you. What is the fear of the Lord? It's a right response to God, where he becomes the greatest influence in your life. Why is it the beginning of wisdom? Well, because this is God's world. He is the one who made it and runs it, and he is the one who made you. Biblical wisdom invites us to be honest with ourselves to look at our lives and to see, are there areas where we're messing things up? Areas where we we regret, areas where we're making mistakes, and we know it. If you look at those areas, is it because you're fearing God or fearing something else? See, the fear of the Lord should free us from all other fears. How often have I been unfaithful because my priorities, my perspective, my fear was out of whack. But if I learn to fear the Lord... The good news is I can grow in wisdom. The fear of the Lord gives us the first and most important understanding we need, the understanding of God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who was, the Bible tells us, the wisest man who ever lived. Um, It's a cool book. You should read it. He, he, He goes through all sorts of stuff he tried. Um, and the cool thing about Solomon is that he had the money to try it all. So you don't have, if you don't have the money, that's fine. Just read the book, and he'll tell you about all these experiences. He tried, um, he tried all the entertainment first. Um, and if you kind of put it together, it's interesting. Solomon, he tried, he tried building like a personal zoo, right? He was bringing like baboons and stuff from other countries, uh, building cool gardens. He tried all the uh, entertainment of the ancient world, and he thought at the end, you know what? It was kind of pretty, but Vanity. Then he tried every type of pleasure, right? You guys know um, he had many more wives and concubines than are um, proper. He tried everything. At the end of it, he said it was vanity. He tried every type of learning. He tried to become more and more wise. He already was the wisest guy. He wanted to get more wisdom. He tried to learn everything he could about the world. At the end of it, he said, you know what? The person who doesn't know anything, they die and I die. It's the same. It's vanity. It's vanity. He tried, even at the end, the value of satisfaction and hard work. Isn't that what we all, at the end, we like, you know, if I could just get a farm, like grow my beans and my chickens, and I'd be happy and simple. Solomon tried hard work. He said, you know what? It's good to be wise and to work hard, but honestly, vanity. In the end, Ecclesiastes 12:13, the conclusion of the wisest was this. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. There's a lot to unpack in the next few weeks, but this is where we need to start. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it's our prayer as a church that, that we would embrace that and we would fear God and we would desire for him to become just just greater and more real and more influencing and motivating and powerful because of the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and, and we we just ask, Lord, for your grace. We ask for you to grant us the grace to fear you. Help us, Lord, to understand that this, which, which might seem maybe um, old-fashioned or maybe kind of, I don't know, out of, out of date or not in vogue, Lord, that you would, you would show us by your spirit, Lord, that this is what we really need. At this time, we're going to pray together and just respond to the Word of God. And I'd ask that you would pray right now to ask the Spirit of God, especially if you are a Christian this afternoon, to, to show you how you need to grow in fearing Him, to show you areas in which other things have exerted influence and control over your life that, that shouldn't. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal those things to you and begin to change you even now. Let's pray. And I imagine that there's some here who maybe don't know whether you're a Christian, whether or not you have the Spirit of God inside of you. But maybe you're starting to see that the fear of the Lord is what you need. Maybe you're starting to see that the gospel that everyone keeps talking about is good news because of what is right and what is wrong and how you need to change. If that's the case, then I would invite you to pray and ask, Lord to grant you that fear to 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 put your faith in Christ even this afternoon Father God i ask that as a church we would be wise as a church we would live under the the reality that you are in charge of this world, that you are in charge of this church, that you are in charge of our lives, that you reign over all, that the only way to live a life that matters is to fear you. Lord, help us to see that our purpose is not found in primarily the things that we do, but in the one for whom we do them. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.